Welcome to the Happy Home Birth Podcast, your source for positive natural childbirth stories and your community of support, education, and encouragement in all things home birth and motherhood. But what if something goes wrong? Perhaps the most often question asked when a home birth mother reveals her plans to her loved ones. Sure, having a home birth sounds like a good idea, if everything goes right. But when it doesn't, what then? Hey there, everyone, and welcome to the Happy Home Birth Podcast. I'm your host, Caitlin Fusco, and this is episode 59. This is a long-awaited episode for me, and I am so excited to dive in, because today's episode is going to cover this topic, what if something goes wrong, and several more with two incredible midwives. Tiffany and Kelly are the midwifery partners behind Beautiful One Midwifery, and their perspective is so useful. I'm so happy to offer this episode as a resource for you, Mama, who is considering home birth, and for your loved ones who would like to know more about what happens when things go sideways. Such an amazing listen. Now, before we jump into this episode, I do want to thank this week's reviewer of the week, and that is Karen Smith, 1998, and Karen, you're great. She put, so empowering, gosh, in quotes, because apparently I say that, gosh, I love this podcast so much. Not only does it spread positivity and education about home birth to the listeners, but it brings such a wonderful community together by allowing women to share their stories, the good, the bad, and all the joys of bringing their babies into the world at home. As a doula who believes in natural family-centered birth, this is my favorite thing to listen to in the car or while cleaning or wherever. I'm so bummed that I'm almost all the way through the episodes already. Keep them coming. Will do, Karen Smith1998. If you will send me an email at Caitlin at myhappyhomebirth.com, I will be sending you a happy home birth sticker. I also wanted to tell you guys that the application to be a guest on the show is up for just a few more days. So if you're listening to this right when it drops, um, you've got a few days. Otherwise, please uh, be on the lookout in a few more months when I do the next batch. So I do have one more exciting piece of news, and that is if you will recall the home birth candles that I was using as a fundraiser earlier, they are now back full time. So you guys have access to those happy home birth candles forever. If you want some for, they make great gifts for your midwives, or if you're a midwife, they make great gifts for your clients. Um, But they're just wonderful because they're 100% soy with cotton wicks, nothing nasty in there, essential oil blends, and they've got cute home birthing names. So myhappyhomebirth.com forward slash candles is where you can go to find all of the information on that. If you could, please take a screenshot really quickly of you listening to this episode, post it to your Instagram account, your stories, tagging Happy Home Birth Podcast, and I will be sure to post that in my stories. And other than that, let's please remember that the opinions of my guest may not necessarily reflect my own and vice versa. And although Kelly and Tiffany are midwives, none of us are acting as your overseeing medical provider. So please be sure to continue to see your doctor, your midwife, or if you're like me, your chiropractor. Let's jump on in with Tiffany and Kelly. Kelly and Tiffany, thank you guys so much for coming on the Happy Home Birth Podcast. Thank you so much also for having us. Yeah, we're really happy to be here. Oh, I am so excited. Right before we started recording, I was talking about how, I don't know if you know it or not, but we are best friends via Instagram. So 
I'm glad you agree. <laughs> yeah, there's like a whole mutual admiration situation happening there. And I love it. Every time like you you repost something of ours, we're reposting your repost. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So fun. So if you wouldn't mind, would you just introduce both of yourselves and your practice, Beautiful One Midwifery, so everyone can admire it as much as I do? <laughs> oh, yes, surely we can. <laughs> Come admire us. Yes. Uh, my name is Tiffany Alblinger, and I am a licensed midwife and certified professional midwife in San Diego. Um, I've got three kids. I have not had any home births. I learned the hard way about um, what physiological birth um, and what it is and how it should be supported through making not the greatest choices with my own um, body and birth. But uh, Kelly and I met as doulas. And that's how we um ended up getting into the birth world as we were going to lots and lots of hospital births. A lot of them, which, you know, serve their place and they can be wonderful as well. But I think uh, we started seeing a couple home births and we were like, oh, oh, this is how it can be. Right. Um, But I didn't introduce myself. No, go for it. I'm Kelly Pappas, also a licensed midwife and certified professional midwife uh, here in California. And San Diego. And I also have three kids. I've had two home births. Uh, my first was in a hospital and, um, again, came into birth work after the birth of my first and it just sort of snowballed from there. And here we find ourselves. That's wonderful. And I do want to take a minute to acknowledge that Kelly was actually the doula for episode 42, which is Elizabeth Achieves a Mindful Birth. She was the doula that Elizabeth raved over. For. It was so sweet. <laughs> it yeah, was that so was much a really fun. special episode to hear her speaking with you, who I've never like officially met, but following your podcast. And yes, it was really, it was really cool for me because she sent me the I mean, I we recorded the podcast months before. I was getting the podcast episode ready. She sent me some pictures and I went through and I was like, wait, is that Kelly? <laughs> like, is that my Instagram best friend? <laughs> uh, yeah, I think it is. <laughs> like, I'm like zooming in and trying to compare to pictures. I finally just like texted it to you. Like, is hey, this is this you? you? <laughs> I love so it. It was super awesome. So now if you guys would kind of explain your practice. And so you said you got together after you know, attending a number of hospital births and you decided to go into home birth midwifery that way. What was that process like? Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely saw the light of, um, home birth as I was trying to navigate the hospital birth scene with my clients as a doula and just, you know, several years of doing that feeling kind of disheartened that my clients were never able to get the birth that they were planning for or looking for, um, despite all of the resources that we had and all of our best efforts and all of, um, all of the ways that I could coach and prepare them and that, um, that they were advocating for themselves in all these situations. It was like, if they had a great hospital birth that went according to the plan that they wanted, it was just luck. That's what it felt like. Like, oh no, you just got lucky. Like a lot of people work that hard and don't get it. So you just got lucky. You had a nice birth. And then I saw a home birth for the first time as a doula and watching that unfold, it was instantly this like light bulb moment of like, oh, 
this is where birth is respected and you don't have to fight and you can have a lovely family centered experience. Um, and actually like come out of it feeling better instead of worse. And so being able to see that particular family and the way that they transformed underneath that care and through that experience, um, was just totally changed the whole picture for me. That's beautiful. It is. Kelly, it's it's pretty awesome to be able to have the experience of seeing both and being like, Oh, okay, here's a pretty stark difference. And it's not necessarily that birth is different. It's just the way that it's looked at the way it's respected, the way that it's managed or not managed or whatever is just different. Um, and my experience is pretty similar too. I had a, my first was in the hospital and I felt like, Oh, that was straightforward. I think I assumed in my head that like a, a natural birth an unmedicated birth was my goal. And I realized after the birth that even though it was unmedicated, I was like, Oh, there's a lot more to just mm-hmm. a good birth than, you know, not having the interventions that I didn't want or whatever. Um, and then eventually just started attending births, lots of hospital births, started to see a few home births and, and then eventually had um, my second at home And as everybody left and we settled into bed, that was when I told my husband, like, okay, I'm going to midwifery school. Wish me luck. Um, I'm starting Monday. Yeah, it just, it made, it made a lot of sense. And um, so Tiffany and I knew each other as doulas. We kind of knew of each other more than really knew each other for quite some time. And as we went through midwifery school, which anybody who's listening, who has been through midwifery school or is going through it right now. Well, no, like it is uh, in and of itself a labor of love. Mm-hmm. That's say a the nice least. Way to put it. <laughs> <Yeah>. Right. <laughs> You're burning your feet on coals daily and pushing yourself further than you ever thought you could ever go in any way. Um, but we started just kind of chatting about things that we were seeing, things that we were learning about, and we realized, like, oh, I said something and she feels very similarly. We're like, oh yeah, we're both nodding at the same you know, <laughs> struggles that we're having or the same right. importance of certain things that nobody else that we were working with was talking about. Um, and it just sort of, it just sort of happened that we started yeah. working together. Yeah. Like, it just became really obvious that we, we both really needed the sustainability aspect, mm-hmm. um, which is a lot of um, what we learn about and get support from following Believe in Midwifery, Madeline Murray. Shout out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The other um, BFF. Yeah. Uh, the uh, trifecta <laughs> of our, <laughs> our complete uh, yeah. thing. Um, you know, she's been very vocal about like, you can have these things and this can be important and you can be an excellent mom and be present in your family and have a full personal life and be a great midwife too. And we knew that a key part of being able to do that was um, partnering together and not practicing solo. So mm-hmm. that was, um, that was a huge gift that we, that we found somebody right off the bat that was going to kind of complete that other, that other half bit. Right. That makes so much sense. So how long was the midwifery school and were you guys already planning to start a practice together as you were going through? Did you apprentice at the same place or w- what was that part like? Yeah, so we we apprenticed in separate um, practices, and Tiffany's experience through school I think was about five years. Yeah, it took me like a really long time. Mine was three, but more so it just happened to be like 
logistics. Um, yeah, where we were apprenticing and all that kind of stuff. Right. And it didn't really, I think, sink in that like, oh, this is a potential until, you know, towards the end of my experience in midwifery school. And then Tiffany was soon after um, finishing up as well. And just sort of thinking about logistics of like, yes, we do we even want to practice? Cause this was so intense. Like we need a second. Mm-hmm. And as we realized like, no, it's not that we don't want to practice. It's just that we don't want to practice this way. We don't want to never right. sleep and never see our families. <laughs> and so how can we do this in a way that it doesn't take over our lives, but it still is beneficial for everybody. Um, so yeah, we've been in oh. practice officially for almost a year now. And for sure, all of the families that we have served, we have said multiple times to each other, like, thank the Lord that we are not doing this alone. Like, right. There's been quite a few things that we have learned together this year that we've um, been humbled by, that we've celebrated, all of those things. I'm like, gosh, it's so nice to have somebody who, like, you can walk through all those different seasons with. Yep. I, oh, man, I, I feel that in my soul. Like, I think about mm-hmm. my apprentice best friend who, you know, you can be in the middle of... you know, a pretty tricky situation and the midwife isn't there yet. And you can just, you know, look up from what you're doing and make eye contact. And it's just like, okay, like we're, we're here together. And, you know, just having someone walking through it with you is, is such a beautiful thing. For sure. Yeah, absolutely. And it's nice too, is like, we've practiced more and more together. We're at, at births in particular, like getting really in sync of like, oh, that I, that eye contact mm-hmm. means this or that like twitch of the face <laughs> means this, <laughs> whatever, like so that we are, we can be on the same page without having to disrupt things too, which is, it's been pretty cool to see that. Um, that is, evolve. that's so neat. So we're going to uh, kind of make a little pivot here and actually talk about some of the questions that not only potential home birth mothers have, but also their family members and friends. When when a home birth mom says like, hey, this is what I'm planning to do, there's oftentimes some feedback for them that's like, oh, well, but what if this happens? And what if that happens? And the people around them tend to be scared and nervous. And I thought that it would be wonderful to have you two on the podcast to really delve into some of the biggest concerns and explain, you know, okay, well, if that happens at the birth, this is really how we handle it. And um, I just wanted a place for moms to be able to come to understand what that looks like in birth, but also for moms to have a place where they can bring their loved ones so that they can kind of understand what, what, the landscape of home birth is actually like. So thank you guys for being willing to do that with me. Oh yeah. And it's, it's um, such a wonderful resource just to be able to provide to your own audience, but also just to bring some normalcy to this topic in general, because it's not getting talked about a whole lot. It's kind of like, you know, like a bit of a taboo thing, like, Oh, home birth is supposed to be um, this beautiful um, visual experience on the internet. <laughs> yeah. All of the birth photos are like so beautiful and put together. And, yeah. yeah. And sometimes that's what have it, how we portray it in the media as midwives. And, right. um, the truth about it is that it's like every other really big transformative experience. Like there's good parts, there's bad parts, there's 
the beautiful and the ugly and the hard and, and that it's just, birth is just like life. Like all of that, all of that can go together. And so just being able to discuss those pieces, like, yeah, like, like sometimes bad things can happen. It can still be a redeeming experience or um, maybe your birth looked really wonderful and everyone there thought it went perfectly, but you hated it. You know, like there's Mm -hmm. just making room for people to have uh, different kinds of experiences, whether it's, you know, about safety or outcome or, or what, but having that conversation, I just really commend you for finding that important for your listeners. I think that you just said that beautifully. And I actually, it makes me think about how even I talk about home birth. And, you know, the problem I feel like is we're so much like, okay, but it can be beautiful. Like, no, home birth is beautiful. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. Because, you know, 99% of the population is giving birth in the hospital where oftentimes it's not so glamorous. And so sometimes maybe even I am saying like, nope, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. It's beautiful, which it is, but, you know, not acknowledging like it's beautiful, but it's, you know, it's life. (laughs) And so Mm -hmm. sometimes there are gorgeous, like, oh, serene births. And then there are Chewbacca screaming your baby out, which was my first birth. (laughs) And that's totally fine. (laughs) Um, So yeah, thank you for saying it that way. That, that is a a really great thing for me to ponder. Hmm. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and it only just because we have to remind ourselves of that so much, right? Like we're constantly, Mm -hmm. Um, trying to temper our own attitudes about it because we do love it so much in comparison to the other options, right? Right. Like when you look at all the options, home birth is the greatest. It is the place to have the most beautiful birth. It is the place to have, um, in our opinions, the, um, the better experience. That is what we truly believe. Um, but it's not because it's at home and it's not because you have midwives and it's not, you know, it's not any one single thing that is going to like create this. There's no formula, right. For having a beautiful birth. It's, it's, um, it's subjective. That's a great point. So with all of that being said, what do you guys come into contact with the most when someone is worried about their birth or, what are you hearing? You know, what are you hearing? Like, oh, well, what about this? Or what about that? What usually follows? What are the questions? I would say, uh, at least from my experience, most of what I hear is what if something goes wrong rather than like, what if the mom bleeds too much? Or what if the baby needs help breathing or whatever? It's usually just like, what if something goes wrong? And I don't know if it's just lack of education in terms of like, oh, not everything's going to go right. And we're very well trained for when things aren't going right. Um, but it's usually just this whole thought of like, yeah, I'm sure home birth can be nice if everything goes perfectly straightforward. And maybe that's all midwives know how to do. Right. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Also like what, in the context of how we like discuss this today, think about like the, the way that people approach home birth and their critical nature towards like that safety element does not get exchanged in the same way in other consumer places for birth. Right. Oh yes, Mm -hmm. for sure. And so I would love it if people would (laughs) take this attitude to their obstetrician and say, 
But what if something goes wrong? Right. right. And so we can't even like, yeah. it, it's not something that can get compared from the, the different birth settings necessarily because the consumer is not willing to do that. So it's going to have to get approached from like a whole different mm-hmm. perspective. Yeah, there's risks no matter where you have your baby. Right. No matter what, you, there's nothing that is 100% safe. And so you have to kind of look at what you're willing to take responsibility for. And we talk to our home birth clients a lot about like, this is a personal responsibility choice. Um, but it's also, I mean, anybody choosing a hospital birth too, I don't think they realize it, but like that's their responsibility and their choice too, right? Yes. And I feel like moms, at least the moms that I've interviewed, a lot of them do have that realization after a negative birth experience. And mm-hmm. it's like, oh, crap. Like I just realized that all of my power was, was not even taken away from me. I just didn't know that I had it in the first place. And so then that's when they start doing the education because they didn't realize that they didn't know things until a negative experience arose. And then it was like, Oh, I, I should probably look into this even more just because we, we trust what medical providers in the hospital setting say. So you know, what's the big deal until there is a deal. Right. And I've, I've had some experience watching women work through their, um, kind of more emergent situations in hospital settings being like, Oh, I'm so thankful that I was at the hospital, you know, because Mm -hmm. X, Y, Z happened. And as time goes on and potentially education happens and they're kind of putting the pieces together and they were like, Oh, well, maybe it was actually because of those like three days of Pitocin (laughs) and the breaking of my water and like X, Y, Z that led to this, right? Rather than, oh, I'm so thankful that someone stepped in and saved the day. Um, Right. And so, you know, and not everybody sees it like that either, but I think that there's just, again, room for so many experiences, but the sort of lack of, um, maybe not even education, but just lack of connection with the experience and with that responsibility piece, um, I think takes a lot away from women and families in general. That's right. Well, this is our PSA to all Mm -hmm. of the moms. You're driving the bus. Like this is your thing, no matter where you decide to give birth, this is your thing and you are in charge and your midwives want that. They want you to be the one making the decisions. So that's really great to hear from you guys. Oh yeah. (laughs) We're all about, we're like all about uh, throughout prenatal care, reminding them and like really building clients up to like, no, I know you might not have had this kind of experience in any medical setting before or in anything related to your health before, but we want you to look at all of the options and make the best decision for yourself. If there's something clinically that we are going to suggest because of a certain picture, like, yeah, we'll let you know that, but this is your experience and we want to respect that. Mm -hmm. That's wonderful. So when we ask the question, what if something goes wrong in the arena of home birth? What if something goes wrong? (laughs) What, what are the things that tend to possibly go wrong. And would you guys walk us through some of those different events and, and what happens when they do occur? 
Yeah, absolutely. And if people, if, if potential clients or even current clients are not asking those questions, like even in the consult, if they're not asking, how are you trained and equipped to handle emergencies and what is an emergency and what will you do? Um, Kelly and I are kind of looking at them like you have some more questions. Surely you do, right? (laughs) I know you Um, do. And, you know, even sometimes we have clients who are like, no, I just want to think really positively about everything and we'll handle situations when we get there. But like, I really need to stay in like healthy mind space where I just believe that everything is going to go great. And that's not a great fit for our practice necessarily because we're wanting to talk a lot about these kinds of things because this is a place where sometimes we have to take charge as care providers and we don't get to say, um, do you want to bleed out or do you want us to give you some anti-hemorrhagic medications right now, right? Everything right. else in the picture is like, what do you want to do? Oh, we don't really care what you do. No, truly, we do not care what you do. And then in some of these situations, we have to act in order to, um, you know, preserve people's health and safety. And so we talk a lot about it. And also, it ends up being a primary concern, for clients, whether they're realizing it or not. And so there's three things that we tell our clients are the most likely complications to happen at home birth. The first one is shoulder dystocia, the baby getting stuck in the pubic bone um, on the way out. The second one is a hemorrhage, bleeding um, too much and us not being able to control it um, with just you know really simple corrective measures. And the third one is the need for the newborn to be resuscitated. And so these are the three things that we go over um, because they actually, these actually are really common things. These are things that we encounter um, attending home births. Um, I don't want to say all the time, but it's right. common enough that we have a lot of experience with handling them and they're not major emergencies. In fact, you know, we let our clients know, of course, there's always a potential that they could that these three things could get out of control. But to date, every single one Mm -hmm. of these complications that we have had to manage um, do not necessitate any kind of um, like 911 call or going to the hospital or anything like that. These are just things that are Mm -hmm. going to come up as a complication that we're trained to handle and we're going to intervene and bring your experience back into normal. And that's what you have us there for. Right. Right. Like we love going to births that are, you know, straightforward and happy and we keep our hands completely off and we let parents just do whatever they need to do, want to do all of that. Um, and again, we love being there, but those aren't necessarily the births that we're, we're needed for. Like right. we had an unassisted birth here, but you know, and everything would have turned out fine. But, um, but we're really there. Like you really want a midwife there for when things go a little sideways and you need somebody who's skilled to help, you know, bring that back into normal. Um, and it's very rare for something to pop up out of like the absolute blue and it'd be like, Oh my gosh, this is a major emergency right in this moment. We need to go. Like we've had no warning sign whatsoever and we need to get out of here as quickly as possible usually it's much more of like a story that's being told. Like the baby's telling us a story through their heart tones or through their position and, and, you know, an inability to manage the pelvis well or mom's vital signs or whatever else. There's this story kind of being told that things start pinging outside of that normal 
sphere. And usually we can bring those back in and it's not an emergent situation, but it's really when they like multiple things are kind of pinging out there and you're like, okay, we need to either discuss what our next options are, you know, or continue to kind of bring it back into normal. And if that doesn't work, then maybe this isn't right. The best place to be, but it's very, very rarely out of the blue we're like rushing out of the house. Right. And I think that that's like an important aspect of all of this, because I think people think uh, that that's the kind of like their vision of the home birth transfer Mm -hmm. is like, it's just chaotic and you're running out, you know, um, with like no warning whatsoever. And obviously things that can certainly happen. Of course, there are situations that would that could happen in the hospital too, right? Like it doesn't necessarily matter where you where you birth, but that would just be the much more uh, rare situation. And that is one of the things that I love so much about the midwifery model of care is there's something to be said about spending so much time with a mother prenatally. There's something Mm -hmm. to be said about a midwife having her hands on a mother's belly, feeling that baby, knowing what is normal for that baby. You know, oh, these are its typical you know, this is what Mm -hmm. its heart rate has been, you know, all of these little signs so that if things are changing during labor, a midwife is very often going to be able to notice that probably better than an OB would, you know, they are so in tune with their clients. So when a red flag pops up, a midwife's going to catch it. And if more and more begin to pop up, then that's when the discussion for like, okay, this, it might be time to go ahead and take this over to the hospital, you know, so it's a slow transport. Mom's just getting in her car as opposed to like, you know, all the alarms going off, ambulance mm-hmm. running, which is like you said, kind of what I, I feel like most people imagine. Yeah. And then I also think some people think that like, if a big emergency happens, that everyone just dies, you know, (laughs) like that there's no like steps to take when a big emergency does happen. That's out of our resource level at home that just everyone dies. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I get that. And especially I think from the partner perspective, like, you know, guys are just hardwired to protect their families and to think about the practical aspects of getting on board with this idea that could be pretty foreign to them. And so I think it's really easy for them to just jump to the worst case possibility Mm -hmm. would be unacceptable to me. And so I would like to um, hold on to and ensure that that will never happen. I cannot get on board with a circumstance where everything I love, it, you know, slips away in one day just because like we wanted some, you know, that we wanted the baby born on the bed. Right. We wanted some candles. Yeah, exactly. And so I think those are, those are really important things to address and, you know, where that's coming from, um, for each individual, but, but mostly it's an education issue. Mostly it's about, um, what could potentially go wrong. The average pregnant person does not understand the common complications of birth. And even somebody who thinks that they have a really good grasp of it because they've had, you know, a few babies in the hospital or they've had complications before, or um, I even talk to doulas sometimes who have been to, you know, dozens and dozens of births who um, get fed a false sense of reality for situations that have unfolded in the hospital, right? So 
I think the first step is understanding birth, understanding the physiological process of how it protects itself naturally when we leave it alone and only intervening when absolutely necessary. I don't think people have the concept of um, how interrupting that process actually creates more complications. Right. That's such a good point. So understanding birth, the physiologic aspect of it. So that's the first step is understanding that, hey, a lot of the complications that are potentially arising in the hospital setting are actually because of interventions A, B, C, and D in the first place. Um, So in the home birth setting, how is that, how is that different? How is it managed? Well, I think also it's important to note that like the birth is the birth, right? But there's this whole prenatal period that builds up to the birth, right? And Mm -hmm. so the amount of time, like we're spending 12, 13 hours with our clients before the birth even happens, right? Mm -hmm. So there's a ton of time for education and connection about nutrition, supplementation, um, moving your body, all kinds of things that like we really care about because we truly, one, we truly care about our clients and healthy moms, healthy baby, babies, all of that. But um, we will be present at your birth and we care very much about the outcome, right? right. So a, an OB can certainly come in for five minutes and make sure everything looks pretty healthy in that moment. And great, they don't necessarily, they're not necessarily tied to an outcome. Of course they want an alive mom and a live baby. Um, Mm -hmm. but they can also just wheel her to the OR if they need to. Right. And so there's not a ton of, um, care necessarily put in there, both emotionally, physically, spiritually, all of it. And so there's, you know, months and months of preparation for this experience and also into postpartum and mothering and all of that. So, I think that when we talk about complications at birth, not talking about the prenatal period and preparing our bodies for the birth, for postpartum, um, would be lacking as well. Because, uh, you know, we make recommendations all the time about upping certain supplements or looking at a mom's diet, talking about whatever protein intake or calcium intake, whatever else that um, can help kind of bolster her system to prepare for what's about to happen. Right. That, and you know, um, one of the things that I'm like, I remember talking to a friend one time who was saying to me, we were, we were both pregnant with our first pregnancy towards the very end. And she was like, yeah, I, I wonder what position my baby's in. Um, I hope I get another ultrasound before the baby's born. So I'll know. And I was like, what (laughs) is your, is your doctor not touching your belly? And it just like, I mean, it, it seriously blew my mind. I just didn't realize the difference in, you know, hands-on care prenatally by the midwife allows for hands-off care during the birth. Whereas, you know, and Mm -hmm. then it's the opposite. It's flipped for an OB who's not, not connected, unable to truly, you know, the, the, the way that it plays out, there are just so many clients. There's not enough time. It's, yeah, I like. I get the mess. way that they practice out of the way that they've set up their own situations. Like, I right. There's a piece of me that's like, okay, as a care provider, like I, I get it. You've created that issue for yourself, and like mm-hmm. are 
but they're like not our problem, right? right. At all. Yeah. Like yeah. those that's, those people are not our problem. Right. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> the the problem is the is um dealing with the consequences that we make as the consumer and making informed decisions as the consumer. Mm-hmm. So let the OBs do the OB thing. But if you're, if you're going to buy the OB ticket, moms, you're going to get the OB ride. So take a look, (laughs) take a look at the midwifery ride, right? It's very fun. That's that's our new um, tagline. (laughs) And the midwifery ride. Yeah. And, 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 um, you know, like paying attention to like, what are you getting out of what you're agreeing to do? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh gosh, that is so great. And I, yes, I really appreciate that, that recognition that, Hey, this, this starts prenatally. This starts with Mm -hmm. talking about diet. This starts with, you know, telling or reminding clients, like actually the way that you even sit can, can determine the position of your baby. And maybe you should check out a chiropractic adjustment you know, these kinds of recommendations that probably aren't going to happen and so much in other variations of care. Yeah, absolutely. We're looking pretty in depth on lab work and all of that. Not that, not that OBs aren't, but we're looking at um, much more in depth of kind of the story that everything is telling um, in order to go into the birth and postpartum as healthy and strong and stable as possible. Um, but I think I, t- I might've taken us off track. I think you asked us that was very about- fun. Yeah. <laughs> it was a good it's ride. a great ride. <laughs> <laughs> Wee. Um, but you were asking, was the question specifically about how things are managed at home? Yeah. Yeah. What, what if something goes wrong? And we, t- we acknowledged that the three big issues are shoulder dystocia, hemorrhage for the mother, and then the need for resuscitation for a newborn. Mm-hmm. So resuscitation is the pretty straightforward one. It's a very scary thought, I think, for many I mean, as it should be like, it's a, it's a daunting idea, um, that your baby might come out and need help to breathe and to kind of get going. But one out of 10 babies needs at least a little help, um, with their transition. So usually that's, um, a bit of inflation breaths that we give them. I would say almost all of the babies I've had to resuscitate have come around with that. Um, and of course some will need a bit more, but that's something that we actually at our home visit around 36 weeks, when we go into clients' homes, we bring that equipment in and we show them like, here's what this um, looks like so that you can see what we are going to do. We're going to, as much as possible, keep baby connected to its umbilical cord. We're going to keep, hopefully be able to do the resuscitation on your chest so that the baby is with you, doesn't leave you as it should be. Um, And we walk them through, this is what it looks like. So that when they see that bag come out, they know in their heads, okay, this is that one out of 10 baby who needs a little something. And we, we talk to each other and we talk to parents as we, you know, go through those motions, but we definitely, you know, that's something that we attend uh, training for every couple years at least, and um, are continuing to keep our skills up so that, you know, we feel super confident. That was one thing I think as a student before going into my very first neonatal resuscitation course, I was like, oh my gosh, if I ever have to resuscitate a baby, I'm going to like freak out. And then of course you do the first one you're like, oh, but I know the steps so well. And you just do the thing and the thing and the thing. And um, you just keep going 
till, till whatever step you land on works. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's, Which, like that's Kelly a great said, way to put it. It's, you know, we do five inflation breaths for 10% of babies. It's very common. And mm-hmm. we give them five good breaths and they come around and, um, you know, we generally move on from there. And I am appreciative of the fact that you mentioned, you know, in the home birth setting, you do like to keep the cord intact. You like to keep the baby with mom. How does that influence what you're doing and what are the benefits of doing it that way as opposed to, you know, immediately cutting the cord and whisking baby off to a tray to perform neonatal resuscitation? Yeah, well, what we understand physiological birth and respect physiological birth and also physiological postpartum and bonding too. So we know that that cord is going to pulse for, um, you know, five to 15, 20, 30 minutes and continue to deliver all of the oxygenated blood from the placenta um, to the baby. And we're letting that placenta um, do its job and spontaneously detach in order to get as much of that nutrients and oxygen rich blood to the baby. So we're not going to cut that lifeline if the baby needs a little bit of help breathing. We really- so you're saying you're not going to <laughs> cut the thing that's helping it? No. For a baby who needs inflation breaths, we can um, usually with a two-person team, like Kelly and I, one person can hold the baby's head and neck in a correct posture, and the other person can do the breasts, and we can um, you know, do that while the mom's holding the baby on her chest. That's wonderful. Okay, so, so that doesn't sound as, as terrifying as it could. And the idea of showing your clients before, you know, not not in labor, like, oh, hey, here's the bag, but like, you know, like, like beforehand, like, hey, this is the equipment that I'm going to be bringing. This is how it's going to be used. That is very soothing. Yeah. And again, I think Tiffany mentioned earlier, there's some people who just don't want to think about that stuff at all, but I think just some education on it then allows it to seem less scary. And Mm -hmm. of course there are some resuscitation situations where like, yeah, we have to do more than five inflation breaths and potentially we might have to cut the cord for some reason. And, you know, there's always, uh, situations that are more intense, but we certainly we're carrying everything that we need in order to bring it back into a normal range, uh, Mm -hmm. for home birth. And of course, if there's a situation where we're like, okay, this is not coming back into normal. This is not the safest place for baby to be. We continue breathing for the baby you know, so it's not a situation where, um, you know, oh, well, it's too bad that we're too far from a hospital. Um, (laughs) we continue to keep those things going. And in that situation, if you're needing to continue to keep breathing for the baby, at least one of us would jump into the, uh, you know, ambulance and continue that because I assume a, someone in an ambulance might not be as, uh, connected and aware of all the aspects of, neonatal resuscitation and all of that as well. So it's not just like, oh, that's too bad. We're out of luck because the midwives couldn't fix it, right? We continue to provide the care until baby is exactly where baby needs to be. I also love that you just mentioned how you would be involved should there be a transport. It's not a situation of like, oh, well, bye, like waving them off. (laughs) Yeah, good luck. And I mean, part of that is, um, I'm not sure quite how it 
works in other states that aren't mm-hmm. licensed and what that uh, connection with care providers looks like and all of that. But here in California and in San Diego, there are quite, I mean, there's quite a few midwives here and we are licensed by the medical board um, of California. And so there is a piece of not legitimacy, but just, um, I don't know what the word would be. Well, it gives us a, um, a, Mm. We're able to operate in the fullness of our scope as an yes. autonomous care provider. Well, there you go. <laughs> Write that down. That was very good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, and we do the same thing with shoulder dystocia, like discussion beforehand um, mm-hmm. at home visits. We say, you will, you'll notice in our tone, because usually we're very like, quiet. It's more question asking if needed, really taking mom's, um, you know, guidance. But then obviously if we're seeing signs of something, we are very communicative and we'll tell them like, no, you're, you're going to move this way and here's what we're Mm -hmm. doing and all of that. So like we talk about getting them into like a runner's lunge. We talk about the different ways that we might tell them like, Hey, we need you to do this and we're going to this is how we're moving your body right now. <laughs> we'll help you do it. But giving them a visual of like, oh, that's what runner's lunge looks like. So if I hear that, like I know, and for the partner too, the partner is helpful for them to hear and see what we're actually talking about. Um, and now, before yeah. we, sorry, don't want to interrupt you, mm-hmm. but before we go into the actual shoulder dystocia, have you guys heard my runner's lunge story? <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. So I, before my very, before my first birth, I actually went to a spinning babies workshop, like, like the Monday before I had the baby early Saturday morning. And Gail Tully is like amazing. She's the mm-hmm. coolest lady. Yes. Um, but she did talk about oh. how you got to watch those moms with the low pubic bones. And my midwife had just we had just been discussing how I had a low pubic bone. So I was like, well, I'm definitely going to have a shoulder dystocia. So there's that. (laughs) And (laughs) so as I'm pushing my daughter out, who was coming out beautifully, I knew it that I was having a shoulder dystocia. So I just whipped that baby up into a runner's lunge and so unnecessarily (laughs) and uh, had a, had a fun little, uh, just like a, a skin tear. Like it wasn't a a muscle tear, but had a cute little tear for that (laughs) because, you know, because I had a a shoulder dystocia. I also thought that my (laughs) midwife put her hand up inside of me and twisted the baby out. Turns out that was just, you know, a regular uh, rotation, but anyway. (laughs) Yeah. It's fascinating where our brains take us though, right? Like you, you hear that and it's in there and you're like, well, look, I've just created my experience. Yes. And sometimes I think that like that being in that place, especially like a student midwife, it's like, you know, enough to be dangerous, but you don't, you know, like, it's like, I don't have the wherewithal of a very skilled longtime midwife. I just Mm -hmm. know stuff. Like. Right. What do I do with that stuff? that's just kind of floating around. I better throw my leg up into a runner's lunge. That's what I better do. (laughs) Anyway, well, and good on you though, because the whole reason that we go over it with our clients and sometimes even have them demonstrate some of the postures that we might ask them to get into is because moving somebody into runner's lunge who is not already uh, in runner's lunge with a baby, with a baby's head (laughs) out of their body. Um, I don't know why, but that is always. 
Not I don't know why. That's hard. <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> I, I can't tell you like how many times I have like felt um like I need like a crane to move someone's <laughs> leg. Even if they're already like hands and knees, I'm right. like, can't me your leg. <laughs> Oh my goodness. Oh, I love that you did it. You just whipped your little leg up. I whipped that bad boy up and (laughs) oh my goodness. So, okay. So shoulder dystocia, you tell at the, at the home visit, you begin discussing this, you mention a runner's lunge. What are, what are some of the steps that you take? Should that begin presenting? I guess it really depends on exactly what we're seeing. And so what we like to um, give our clients the, um, you know, bit of information about what to expect is that we're going to be moving them. So wherever you're at, we're going to ask you to stop pushing. And then we're going to make a suggestion about what position you should get in next. Um, and suggestion is a very kind way of putting it. <laughs> we're going to, we're, we're telling you. About that Tiffany one. will yank on yeah. your leg <laughs> and Kelly will get her yeah. mom voice. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so we go through a couple of those, a couple of discussions with them. Um, you know, runner's lunge is our, it's our favorite one. It's the first one that we're going to go into to try to get that baby out. Um, if mom's in the tub before we ask her to go in runner's lunge, we're going to get her out of the water. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if she's on the bed, we're going to put her on the floor and just to give ourselves, you know, some room to, to move around. It's, um, shoulder dystocia is most often resolved pretty easily by the mother's change in position. And if her position changing is not bringing the baby, then we'll go inside and try to free the baby manually with our own hands. Right. And that's kind of like what you mentioned with the neonatal resuscitation. It's like, okay, if not this, then this, if not this, then this. And so I think that for um, moms, partners, family members to hear like, well, it's not just one and done, you know, there, there's a list of options that we're going to just keep going through. Should number one not work? It's okay. There's number two. And now we're going to go to number three. So that's a great, great thing to keep in mind. Yeah. At most trainings I've ever been to for shoulder dystocia too, they talk about like, you, are you fearing that you're not going to get the baby out? Well, guess what? Like you're going to get the baby out. Like you're just going to keep doing the everything to get the baby out. Right. right. Like, and you just, again, like you were saying, you do what you do and then you go to the next step and the next step. Um, and again, that's, what's helpful about having a pretty well-versed with each other team, um, because we know what each other's first preferences and, you know, can support each other in that way as well. So that we are like a well-oiled machine for when things do go a bit sideways like that. And oftentimes a shoulder dystocia will lead to the other things that we were talking about, right. neonatal resuscitation, postpartum hemorrhage. Um, and so again, having discussed all of those things beforehand, helps takes a little bit of that fear away. Of course, nobody wants to have a shoulder dystocia or wants to have anything, right, pop mm, up. Right. But it does, I think, help just to understand the general process of what midwives do in those situations because, yeah, things can go wrong, but we have the skill and the training and you should, as listeners, whoever you are choosing for your care provider, that's an important question to ask, you know, as you consult, or if you've already chosen a midwife, 
talk with them about it um, because I think that'll help clear up any concern, question, fear either you have or somebody around you has because that's a common common aspect of this. Yep, that's that's a great point. Okay, so so we're saying that shoulder dystocia does does happen and sometimes it can lead into the other two which we discussed neonatal resuscitation. What about the postpartum hemorrhage? What about the the maternal aspect of concern after birth? Yeah, and that's actually a really legitimate concern because that's the leading cause of death worldwide, right? Is uncontrolled mm. bleeding for women. Um, Kelly mentioned that we emphasize nutrition quite a bit in prenatal care because uh, we do have a lot of evidence that good nutrition can either minimize or prevent um, catastrophic bleeding. But there's so many different reasons for bleeding. The most common reason for bleeding is um, the uterus does not firm up on its own. So it's staying relaxed and the blood vessels are um, open and not clamping down, which is just letting blood flow through that organ. Um, and so our job in that situation is to get it firmed up. And sometimes we can do that um, with our hands on the outside. Sometimes we can do that with our hands on the inside. Um, sometimes we can do that with herbs. Sometimes we can do that um, with the anti-hemorrhagic medication that we bring. Everybody's really familiar with Pitocin because it's just given um, routinely in the hospital setting to like kind of I, I believe it's to prophylactically um, treat hemorrhage in that setting because they are so aware um, and terrified of it. But the other thing that we do to prevent the most common stage that hemorrhaging presents itself is that we have a pretty hands-off approach to placenta delivery. Mm. And so we're letting the cord pulsate as long as it wants to. We are, um, whenever possible, allowing the placenta to be born spontaneously. And that is really hard even for some of the best midwives um, who believe in as hands-off care as possible to do, not to provide cord traction not to um, constantly feel if the placenta is ready mm -hmm. to come out or not, not to um, assist it in, in coming out. And certainly those skills and that, that type of training is important in some situations. You know, I've had to utilize that before, but our default is to support spontaneous delivery of the placenta. And what about that makes such a difference? Uh, it allows the physiological process of um, you know, birth and postpartum, right? So we are just innately um, believing in that process and believing that that is what works, that the body was designed to um, conceive a baby, grow a baby, birth a baby, and clean up after itself <laughs> when it's done. And it works best when we do not disturb it. And so... When we do have to disturb it or we do have to intervene, you know, of course, like I said, we have the resources to do that. But your body being able to um, allow the hormone flow after the baby's born and allow it time to realize that the uterus is empty um, 
allows it to kind of go through the process of releasing the placenta on its own also. And it's a, it's a complicated, um, it's a complicated process. We don't know exactly what causes each, you know, minute detail. And so when we interrupt by providing tension or when we interrupt by rubbing the fundus or when we interrupt by providing um, medication for it to do the job just a little bit faster so that we feel better about completing that part, um, we're really kind of putting our putting our foot in that sequence that the body um, most likely will do on its own. And when the placenta is able to come off the uterine wall and, and the mom is able to expel it spontaneously with her own effort, we just see better outcomes. Right. Yeah. So you're, when you say that, you mean like there's less of a chance of maybe, you know, some membranes being left in or less of a chance of a little bit of placenta being stuck inside is that kind of what yes. you are referring yeah. to yeah right. or or less of a chance of the uterus getting overstimulated you know when we touch the uterus a lot while the placenta is still inside it's telling the uterus um to either clamp down more than it already was or to clamp down and when I say clamp down I mean contract right. to contract um in an in, in coordinated way and so we just try to Mm-hmm. not do that but it's 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 anxiety producing for the care provider yeah I was just thinking like this is my one thing where I like trust it believe in it all of the things and it's a it's still for me one of those things where I'm like yeah I'm gonna feel a lot better when that placenta is just out mm-hmm. and we're right. you know nice and stable of course but it does um like I know how to do the things with my hands but I know that it's better to just sit on them and and yeah. let this play out but again, it is still something that goes through my brain of like, no, Kelly, sit on your hands. That's mm-hmm. what you need to do right now. It's um, so funny because even with my second birth, which was a hands off, I didn't want anybody touching me. I was able to catch the baby. I did all of the stuff. I lost my mind in the postpartum and was like so anxious to get that freaking placenta out of me. I don't know why. And so I delivered the placenta, but I'm freaking pulling like giving traction and I I didn't (laughs) even think about it yes I like oh I did it myself okay well you still did the thing Caitlin like what (laughs) but but you know do you think that 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 is because like you said you know postpartum hemorrhage is such a true issue and I also think I mean part of that probably was like it doesn't feel good to have a placenta sitting in there either. That's There's lots fair. of pressure, it's uncomfortable. It's like you know that you're going to feel a lot better when you're fully cleaned out of the things. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, I think that for the most part when things can go a little off is like really starts I mean it can go off at any time, but when the baby is born is really when we're like okay, we're, we're ready for anything. We're always ready, but you know what I mean? Like it kind of ramps up at that point. And, um, we, we are able to give our clients some time to like bond by themselves without us rushing around in the room and all of that. Once the placenta is out and mom is stable and we've checked bleeding and all of that stuff. And it just, it feels good to be at that part, right? Where we're like, that makes sense. Okay. Nobody now, died. Yes. Like we are all, we're all safe. Go drink some tea. Yes, exactly. Yeah, that that totally makes sense. And I did want to ask you, so you mentioned, you guys mentioned that prenatally nutrition is one of the big things that 
that you have found to really influence potentially postpartum hemorrhage um, and the prevention of it. So what are some of the things that you find yourself recommending? Is is one of the things a tea perhaps? Um, there's lots of ways to get different types of um, you know, supplementation and nutrition and all that kind of stuff. So mm-hmm. there's definitely some teas that are wonderful for that. One of the big things that we've been suggesting after reading um, a handful of research papers has been calcium supplementation. Oh, really? Uh, Yeah. Which kind of like threw me off. I learned a bit more about it uh, towards the end of midwifery school. And then in my own pregnancy as well, Um, I have a toddler now, but, um, but we recommend that throughout pregnancy as it's actually been shown to help those blood vessels um, contract and uh, decrease the potential for postpartum hemorrhaging. And so that's something that like, we kind of stay on top of our clients about, like we look at everything that they're taking and kind of add up all the numbers in our head. And, um, and we suggest 1200 milligrams daily. Yeah. But Kelly, we don't add numbers in our head. Remember? Oh yeah. We add them on our iPhones. (laughs) (laughs) We're not mathematicians. We don't do math. (laughs) (laughs) We need a calculator app. Also. Yeah, very much. <laughs> yeah. But for yeah, basic. I, I, um, I feel like that's a pretty a pretty big one. There's quite a few, um, maybe not quite a few, but a handful of really good research out there about how that impacts postpartum hemorrhage. And that's uh, been encouraging for us, especially when we get clients who come in who are like, oh, I bled, you know, a bit more than I, you know, maybe should have, quote, whatever, mm-hmm. um, last time or in previous births or whatever, that we always just try to be as prophylactic as possible in that way. Right. And I, I mentioned the tea simply because with, so with my first pregnancy, I did, I didn't end up having to have Pitocin, but I did have to take some um, herbs postpartum. But with my second pregnancy, I used Nora tea. So nettles, oat straw, red raspberry leaf, and alfalfa, and a few other delicious things to make it actually taste good. And, Mm -hmm. um, and I, I infused it. So it was, you know, it steeped overnight before. Mm -hmm. And I was shocked that I didn't bleed to the point where, you know, I had been preparing my my two and a half year old, I wanted her there when the baby was born. And so we watched a lot of home birth videos and I would show her ones with blood. And I was like, you know, mommy might bleed some, some but it's okay. It's fine. It's fine. Well, so I gave birth and there wasn't any blood and she was like, she felt like she'd been gypped. She was like, where's the blood? (laughs) I'm here for the blood, mom. Uh, Quick question. So all all of those things um, can increase calcium too, but alfalfa as well is like a really great one. We're looking a lot at like mom's labs as well to see like, what's their platelet count? How's Mm. their hemoglobin looking? All of that. Like what do the healthy red cell blood cells, what are they doing? What do they look like? Um, And really helping bolster moms to be prepared for if they do bleed a bit, which some bleeding, right, is normal, um, Mm -hmm. that they can feel well after as well. Like, I feel like that's a a big part too. We have a, not, we have a healthy tolerance of blood loss after birth if mom is handling it well. Um, But we also don't want her to feel like crap either, you know, and so newborn and stuff. Right. Exactly. So, um, yeah, we, we try to look at the whole picture as much as we can. And of course, when a baby comes and there is some blood loss that 
we start really needing to pay more attention to, um, we kind of increase in our, it's just like every other step we've talked about. There's like some herbs that we can try. There's some, this, you know, like medication we can use where there's some more medication. There's some more, you know, each step Mm -hmm. to kind of see what is going on and how can we manage this the best as possible. Um, and again, this is what it's like in California because I'm not sure about every state and how, right. you know, their mid- midwives are licensed to bring certain medications. Like we can start um, IVs, we can give Pitocin, mm. we can give Methogen, we can give uh, Misoprostol. Um, so not not every midwife is able to, and that's a good question too, to kind of right. talk with your provider about. Absolutely. And I that is actually, kind of I find when there's... Um, when I talk to midwives who have less pharmaceutical resources, they have much better non-pharmaceutical resources. Right. Mm -hmm. That's true. And often better outcomes because of it. So I would not say a lack of um, being able to procure or use medications under a certain, um, you know, law or license necessarily makes better outcomes. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. That's a great point. Mm-hmm. Yep. And that is, ugh, it's so frustrating to have to be like, now understand that this is probably not even the way it is where you are because it's different right. in every single state. <laughs> but but as a general rule, it is great to hear, you know, it's great to hear how, how it's working for you guys and what clients can ask to, to know like, okay, well, what is it like in my state? And, um, and there are resources that I actually will add to these show notes, um, where you can look at your state and see what, you know, what the regulations are, um, what midwives do and do not do. So I'll make sure yeah, to do that. That's, that's important. Again, as Tiffany mentioned, like it might, it doesn't necessarily mean, oh, I have access to great midwifery care just because there's licensure. Right. right. Or, or, or not. So, uh, that's really, that's a whole other podcast episode. Uh, for you. Well, yeah. I'll go ahead and put it in the books because yes. it's a great one. <laughs> yes. You will come back for that. Yeah. Thanks. Good. Thanks for the invite. Absolutely. Oh, that, that was definitely an invitation. <laughs> so, so, okay. I, I'm so grateful that you guys discussed these three topics. If you have more on that that you would like to say on the emergent situations, I'd love to hear it. Otherwise, I did kind of want to talk about postpartum for just a bit and what you guys are doing with your practice. Oh, yeah, for sure. Let's talk about it. Let's please do. So you have, I mean, I guess it's been a little while since I saw this, but it just was mind-blowing to me. the way that you're approaching postpartum and uh, you're seeing your clients for up to a year after, is that correct? Yeah. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> that is crazy. What are we doing? <laughs> it's a great ride. This midwifery, it's a great ride. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we didn't want to just replicate all of the models that we see around us. We really wanted to assess as moms what we what we would have needed and look at our clients and see what they need. And postpartum care is severely lacking in, um, in our country, but just in our society in general, it's it's not valued as much as it's needed. And so we really, um, we want to provide really good care to our clients, but our clients represent an incredibly small number of women who are giving birth. And so the reason we talk about our offering so much is because we want to inspire 
other women as consumers to ask for more care and ask for better care, not just from their midwives, but from, uh, from whoever is taking care of them to say like, oh, here's something that people are actually doing. And so we see our clients at all of the normal um, intervals up to six weeks that most midwives do. So, you know, we come like six times in those first six weeks to check on mom and baby. And we're in contact about all of the things in between those appointments too. But after that six-week appointment, most midwives and definitely all um, hospital-based providers are saying goodbye to their clients. And we're realizing that moms are just kind of like on the cusp of needing an incredible amount of care for -hmm. those, you know, next several months. So we continue to see our clients at three months, six months, nine and 12 also. That is amazing. (laughs) It's true. It's like those first six weeks are sometimes they can be the easiest because a lot of times, you know, maybe family is coming into town or people are checking up on you, but it's, it gets lonely right after that. And it gets back to real life right after that. And that's when, you know, things can really hit the fan. So this idea of having moms have a place where they can come and be with other moms too. Is this, this is a, like a, is this a group function? This is just an individual, like they're welcome to make an appointment with us. Um, Mm. those, the three, six, nine, 12 month appointments, um, they can kind of pick and choose whether they want all of them, one of them, any other interval within there, but they come to our office, um, and just, you know, continue their care that way. And a lot of times things are coming up at that point that wouldn't have even been on the radar at at six weeks, right? Like, Mm -hmm. oh, my abdominal separation feels like this now, or uh, sex is really, has been painful for the past couple months, or um, I have a yeast infection or, you know, uh, anything. And sometimes it's just people being like, I just miss you guys. Yes. And want to come in and talk. (laughs) And we're like, great. That sounds really wonderful. Let's just, we'll hold your baby and you lay down on our couch and you can take a nap or whatever, Mm -hmm. however you want to use this time. Um, And we also offer our postpartum care kind of a la carte too, to people who are birthing in hospitals um, or, you know, anywhere else where they wouldn't get, uh, you know, consistent postpartum care. If they want more in their homes, those first six weeks and then continued on through that first year, if they, if they want it. Um, because again, that in particular, obviously one six week appointment is simply not enough for anybody. Mm-hmm. So we just, we just see that we just see the need and, um, felt like this was our small way of fulfilling it in, you know, our small client population. Again, like Tiffany mentioned in hopes of that sort of starting to spread with mm-hmm. the recognition of the importance of postpartum, not like physically, emotionally, spiritually, like in every way, it obviously rocks you. Right. And I, I just remember when you guys first announced it, I was like, why didn't I think of that? Like, (laughs) that's amazing. And so I (laughs) hope that all of the other, you know, midwives and care providers who are listening to this have that same aha moment of why didn't I think of that? Like, yeah, my clients, they need this. They, they really need this. And also that bond that you do have, just like you said, like some clients are like, well, I just want to come see you guys. Like it's, it's hard to just cut it off at the end at six weeks. Like it's a really beautiful thing that you can continue that trusting relationship and moms have a place to come ask questions where they know that they're understood and they know that they're truly cared for. Yeah. Like we know 
we know the story, you know, and their story and all, all kinds of things. So we're happy to like continue that. And some clients totally take advantage of it. And some are like, Oh, well, like, I'm actually pretty good. I don't really need to see you guys. And we're like, great. That's wonderful. Mm -hmm. Um, but we always like it to be at least available. Right. That's, Oh, that's wonderful. Well, Tiffany and Kelly, I cannot thank you guys enough for coming on the podcast today. And I do want to ask if you would um, please share your social media information, ways that people can learn more about you. Because like I said, you are just such an inspiration to me. And I know that you will be to all of the listeners as well. We should come on the podcast more often. This feels really um, good. <laughs> yeah. Um, I've already got a all right, co-host. I need more back in my life. <laughs> no, we don't have anything else going on. We should do this some more. Um, but on Instagram, you can find our midwifery practice at at beautiful one. That's O-N-E midwifery. Right. Yep. And Mm then um, we also have another little space where we talk about some women's health topics as well, Um, both both in person for people in San Diego as um, as well as online called uh, Wine and Gyne, which is a fun little name. Yeah, it is. And that's the is that that's an ampersand sign in the middle, right? No, Instagram won't let you. Oh, so it's A-N-D. I couldn't remember. Yeah, so it's wine underscore and underscore gyne, which okay. is G-Y-N. Perfect. And it is pronounced yeah. gyne. Some people are like, oh, it's wine and gin. I'm like, hmm, no. no. Can't recommend that <laughs> yeah, combination. That <laughs> nope, not that. Um, yeah, and you guys have a podcast through that. So where where do they get the podcast? and Where can they download the podcast? You can listen to the Wine and Guide podcast on all the major platforms. So iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, uh, Spotify. Yeah, and search Wine and Guide and um, so much things about your vagina will. <laughs> You'll be amazed. It's, yeah, it's not so much about birth, even though like we're home birth midwives. There's uh, not really a ton of birth info there. It's more just general women's health. Uh, period cycles, sex. It's, you know, like chatting with your girlfriend. Yeah. It's awesome. It's, it is so funny guys. It's like, it's just the perfect amount. It's like a dash of humor, a dash of education, dash of humor, dash of education. It's, thank you. It's great. Very good. That was the hope. You made it. You made it happen. (laughs) Well, guys, I cannot thank you enough for coming on. And we'll go ahead when we get off of this recording, we'll go ahead and schedule our next one. And (laughs) we'll keep tagging each other on Instagram. So it'd be great. Obviously, all the time. (laughs) All right. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. What an amazing episode. There is just so much that we could talk about. And I feel like I should do another episode based off of the notes of this episode, but I will just leave you with a few final points for our episode roundup. First thing, we often forget that no matter where we give birth, risk is involved. There's no guarantee that any birth will have a specific outcome, whether at home or in the hospital. The second thing I want to mention is how amazing the midwives model of care is for catching red flags and signs of concern because care is so hands-on prenatally. 
This allows a true understanding of both mother and baby. So when it's time to make a change, a change can be made safely. Third point, neonatal resuscitation, postpartum hemorrhage, and shoulder dystocia are the most common concerns. Yet for all three, midwives take specific measures to bring the situation back into the realm of normal and safe. As Tiffany said, everybody doesn't just die. (laughs) And number four, I want this episode to serve as a reminder to talk to your care provider. Ask them what it is that they do when complications arise so that you can feel confident. Ask them if they'll show you the equipment so that you're comfortable with it beforehand. I love this idea and think it's so neat that that is just what Tiffany and Kelly do automatically when they have their home visits. And finally, extending postpartum care. What an idea. I love that this is so front and center in their practice and care, and I pray that it catches on everywhere. All right, my friends, that is all that I have for you this week. I know you got a lot out of this episode because I got a lot out of this episode, and I look forward to seeing you back here next week.